All right. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Pull ourselves together as you turn there. I do want to make one note uh, for us as you turn your Bibles. Um, we have these out at the Connect table. These are um, invitation cards to um, our Easter gathering this year. We're, we're just about a month away from Easter, which is crazy. Um, and this year we're doing, we've never done this before, but we are going to be uh, having two worship gatherings on Easter this year. Um, and we want to pack this room out at both 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock. And so we want each of you to take one of these with you, and we want you to invite one person to come with you on Easter. Okay, so you can find these at the Connect table. Um, be praying about who you need to invite, and be diligent to put this in someone's hand. Let's fill this room up on Easter. Um, so last week, we began... Um, a new series that we're calling On Earth As It Is In Heaven. We're going to, during this uh, season of Lent, as we journey towards Easter, uh, journey through the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount was uh, a sermon that Jesus preached uh, during his three-year itinerant ministry uh, in Israel. And it's what many people have called uh, the greatest sermon ever preached. Matthew records that, that Jesus... Uh, ascended a mountain, and this would have been much as Moses ascended the mountain. In fact, Matthew goes into great uh, detail to, to try to parallel Jesus and Moses um, and to show us that Jesus, like Moses, ascends a mountain. And, and just as Moses received on the mountain the Ten Commandments, Jesus sits down in, in this traditional rabbinical posture, showing himself to be the greater Moses, and he begins to teach and to preach what, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And, and what we saw last week was that as Jesus begins this message, this sermon, the first word out of his mouth is this word makarioi, or blessed in your translation, uh, what we might say as flourishing. In fact, he repeats this word eight more times in the introduction to his sermon. And Pastor Stephen helped us to see that Jesus begins his sermon. As he begins his sermon, he's calling everyone who has ears to hear. He's calling them to a way of life in the world that leads to wholeness and flourishing. Jesus is inviting us into the good life. That's what this sermon, that's what this message is about. It's, it's about life under God, under his rule and experiencing his blessing. But we also saw last week that the pathway to blessedness is counterintuitive to how we might think of what it means to flourish. So Jesus says things like, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. He says blessedness looks like meekness. It looks like suffering injustice and longing for righteousness. It looks like being persecuted. On the surface, this kind of life appears to be struggling, not flourishing. But if you have eyes to see it, this is actually the way that leads to life. Because, as Stephen helped us see last week, this beatitudinal life is life lived with Jesus. 
right? The Beatitudes describe the person and the work of Christ himself, and they're inviting us into life with him. And so when we embrace this life, we experience Jesus's presence. And and to be with Jesus is what it is to flourish. That is flourishing. Secondly, the the, the Beatitudes point us forward to this great future reversal that will happen on the last day when when God will turn the world right side up. In in other words, uh, the life that Jesus is describing, though it leads to suffering in this life, at the end of our suffering, there's flourishing because God is going to right all wrongs. He's going to make everything right in the end. On the last day, those who are presently humbled and meek from following Christ will be the ones who inherit the earth. Those presently suffering injustice and and persecution for his namesake, they will be satisfied. Justice is coming. They'll inherit the kingdom. So even though on the surface, it looks like Jesus' followers are withering away. They are actually, because of the promise of what is to come, flourishing. This morning we pick up in verses 13 through 16 where Stephen left off last week. And and these words that we come to of Jesus are are familiar words for most of us. We've heard this before. Jesus in these verses calls his disciples to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. You've, You've probably heard someone described before as the salt of the earth. That person, they're just salt of the earth, man. It's become this colloquial way of saying that someone is a nice person, that they're a good person. And you've probably sung the song before, This Little Light of Mine. I'm going to let it shine. I grew up singing this song in church as a boy, but I've also heard this song sung in all kinds of different contexts, a lot of which were not church. And, And this, like the salt of the earth language, has become this generic way of saying, be your best, most positive you. Is that what Jesus meant by these words? That's what we're going to try to answer this morning. And and the confusion comes in when we treat these verses as if they're a completely separate message from what we saw last week. But as, as Jonathan Pennington points out, verses 13 through 16 flow logically from verses 3 through 12. And they serve as a conclusion to this opening portion of Jesus's sermon. These, these words that Jesus speaks to us today, they connect with the Beatitudes and they add this this punctuating thought to the life that Jesus is calling us to. And they have a specific meaning for us for how he is instructing us to live our lives. And so if you have your Bibles, let's read together Matthew chapter 5. And and to pick up a little context, we're going to begin in verse 10. So Matthew chapter 5, let's start in verse 10. Jesus says these words. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? 
It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. If we can, let's pause and just ask for the Lord's help as we dive in together. Father, as we come to your word, we ask for your help. We ask that your spirit would help us to understand these words that you spoke, that you would illuminate our minds, but God, that you would also grant us soft-soiled hearts to, to receive this word and to walk in obedience. Lord, we want our lives to be salty. We want our lives to be bright. We want them to shine in the world. So God, help us to hear what you're saying to us and to walk in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, we're going to take a deep dive into these words of Jesus. And one of the things that I hope you walk away with today is a sense of awe at how multi-layered God's word is. There's so much packed into these words, these verses that we're unpacking this morning. And while the basic idea will quickly emerge, there's depth to what Jesus is saying. And so I want you to buckle up and we're going we're gonna to go and we're going to try to go quickly, okay? So Matthew 5.10, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then in verse 11, he connects the dots. He says, to be persecuted for righteousness' sake is to be persecuted for his sake. You see that? Blessed, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And then in verse 11, blessed are you when, when people revile you and persecute you and say all things falsely about you for my sake, on my account. So, so suffering and persecution are, are being tied to being Jesus' disciple and living for him. And then we also notice in verse 11 that Jesus transitions from the impersonal, blessed are those, to the very personal, blessed are you. He's making an emphatic and a climactic point. He's, he's building this thing to a crescendo, right? Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. If you have ears to hear, Jesus is talking to you. And what's interesting is that this you continues in verses 13 through 16, which is a clear indication that what Jesus was saying in 11 and 12 carries into 13 through 16. They tie directly. They link thematically. So this idea of persecution connects to this idea of being salt and light. Jesus has just told his disciples that this, their living for the kingdom is going to result in persecution. This is how the, the Beatitudes end. Hey, this, this is going to result in being persecuted for righteousness sake. It's going to result in people reviling you and saying false things about you. It's going to result in you suffering for, for my sake. So the disciples are hearing this, but who wants to suffer persecution, right? When, when they hear Jesus speak these words, the temptation might be to think that there is a way for them to live in this life as Jesus' disciples and to avoid the persecution part. 
to go about their lives in such a way that they simply blend in with the world. And so Jesus follows up this exhortation to embrace persecution and to see it actually as a blessing by exhorting his disciples to go out into the world boldly because this is how they will fulfill their purpose as his followers. And this is actually how they will experience his blessing. Jesus is calling us, if we call ourselves disciples, to live our lives out loud. Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus is calling us to live our lives in such a way that people see our lives, they see our righteousness, they see our good deeds, that's, that's another way of saying our righteousness, and they give glory to God who's in heaven. That the aim of your life and my life should be the glory of God. This is your purpose as Jesus' disciple. This is fundamentally what life is about. You exist for the glory of God. The Westminster Divines got it right. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. You exist for the glory of God. Jesus is calling you to live your life in such a way that people give glory to God as a result of how you live. And tying this back to last week, living this way is the pathway to flourishing. Do you want your life to count? Do you want to have a sense of, of wholeness, of blessedness in your life? This is how. Despite the danger of persecution, you, you will never experience what life is truly about outside of being Jesus' disciple and living for the glory of God. That's what Jesus is saying here. This is how we experience the good life. And to illustrate what this looks like, Jesus uses two metaphors. He says that disciples are to be like salt and disciples are to be like light. You're the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled trying to explain and figure out exactly what it means to be salt and light. In fact, one, one theologian I read pointed out that there were at least 11 distinct uses of salt in the Old Testament. So how exactly do we get at what Jesus is saying in this passage? There, there are a few common ideas that kind of rise to the top. One, one idea is that this language of salt was, is, is being associated with purity. Salt was used as a cleansing agent. People would use it to, to clean their hands. And so maybe Jesus is getting at this idea of purity. Salt was also associated with purity because of its white color, similar to snow or wool. And so if we understand it this way, what Jesus is saying is that he's sending us out into the world to have a transformative and cleansing effect on the world. Others think that the main idea here is, is a preservative, that salt was a preservative. Salt would be used in, in ancient times to, to preserve meat and, and, and other foods. They didn't have refrigerators. They didn't have ice boxes. And so what they would do is they would cure meats with salt, right? And, and, and the salt would preserve 
the meat. And so if we take it this way, the disciples are being sent out into society as preservers of society. As we live under the rule and the reign of God, as we advance his kingdom, the world is kept from moral decay. The presence of Christians in the world ought to have this preserving, preserving effect on those around us. As we, as we share the gospel message, people are saved from God's judgment. They're preserved. Their souls are preserved. One last common idea here is that salt was used for flavoring. Salt was used as a seasoning. It made food, food taste better. And if we take it this way, disciples are being commissioned to go live winsomely in the world. We're, we're to live our lives in such a way as we embody the nature and the character of Jesus. We're to live winsomely with others. We're to, we're to show that Jesus is good and right and true, that his ways lead to flourishing. We flavor the world through our good deeds and through our message. Now, all of these ideas really have merit. Each of them is kind of getting at the same basic idea, which is this, that as disciples of Jesus, we're being, we're being sent into the world to make an impact for God's kingdom. We're being sent to go live our lives in such a way that has an impact on others. But I think we can squeeze a little more out of this text. One guy I read, Charles Corals, makes two helpful observations to guide us in, in narrowing in on exactly what Jesus is getting at here with this language of salt. First, he points out that, that verses 13 and 14 are parallel, which suggests that the, the, the meaning of salt and the meaning of light are really the same, that they're really getting at the same basic idea. The second thing he points out is, is that Jesus has already referenced the prophet Isaiah in the sermon. And that Matthew has repeatedly referenced Isaiah as he's told the story of Jesus up to this point. And so, Coral suggests that if we look for how salt and light might share a meaning, and if we look to the prophet Isaiah, we might find some insight. It's fascinating. In Isaiah 42, we come to a passage that is all about God's servant, the servant of the Lord, which which most everyone takes to be a messianic prophecy. It's a, it's, a, it's a prophecy about the coming Messiah, the coming deliverer of Israel. And in, in Isaiah 42, verses 6 and 7, Isaiah prophesies about this coming servant, and he says this, I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness, and I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. So in this passage and in many other passages in Isaiah, light is, is used over and over again as this metaphor that pictures God's coming Messiah who is going to deliver people out of darkness. He's going to manifest the glory of God, not just to Israel, but to the nations. And Isaiah combines this language, this language of light with the language of covenant. I give you as a covenant to the people. In other words, through God's servant, through this coming Messiah, this coming deliverer, a new covenant is going to be enacted, which will result in the nations being brought into God's family. 
And this idea of enacting a covenant is, is where salt and light overlap in meaning. Because one of the major uses of salt in the Old Testament was, was in a covenant sacrifice, was in the covenant ritual. Salt was often added to covenant sacrifices as a symbol of permanence. So let me give you a few examples. Leviticus 2.13, you shall season your grain offerings with salt, and you shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Numbers 18, verse 19, all the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord I give to you and to your sons and your daughters with you as a perpetual due. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord for you and for your offspring with you. So one commentator explains that a covenant of salt means an eternal covenant. And this is so because salt was something that could not be destroyed by fire or time or any other means in antiquity. The addition of the salt to the offering was a reminder that the worshiper was in an eternal covenant relationship with his God. So salt conveys this idea of eternal covenant. And light pictures the result of that covenant. That those in darkness will be liberated. The nations will be brought into God's family. And so if we put these ideas together, disciples, the disciples of Jesus are being sent out as messengers of a new and lasting covenant that has come through Jesus. Jesus is the servant of the Lord that Isaiah is talking about. He's the one that has come to liberate those in bondage, to, 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 to light up those who are in darkness. He is going to set the captive free through his life and death and resurrection. He is enacting a new covenant that is going to welcome the nations in by faith in him. Jesus is the way of salvation for all who believe in him. And as his disciples were being sent out as heralds, and ambassadors of this message. We are sent to proclaim. Jesus is saying to us this morning, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. He is sending us to go proclaim the good news that God's new covenant, his everlasting covenant, has come through him. And the time of liberation and rescue has dawned. The blind will see. The prisoners will be set free. The light will shine for nations in darkness. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant I will make with them, with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within their minds. I'll write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each to his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Why? For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward them, and I will remember their sins no more. This is the good news we are sent to proclaim. 
This day has come. This covenant has dawned. And through Jesus, we've been brought into the family. We've received God's mercy. Our iniquities have been pardoned. We've been forgiven. And he has written his law on our hearts. He's put it in our minds. And now we go out as God's people to live our lives in such a way that people see our lives and hear our message and give glory to God in heaven for what he's done. Jesus is saying, this is what it means fundamentally to be my disciple. This is what it means to be salt and light. It's not not some generic best version of you. It's not just being a nice person. It It is being a herald of the good news that Messiah has come. And he set the captive free. He's ushered in a new covenant, a covenant of mercy that endures forever. But Jesus also warns that you can choose not to live your life this way. You can choose not to live as salt and light. He says your life could be like salt that has lost its taste or like a lamp that is hidden under a basket. You could fail to fulfill your calling as his disciples. And there's a play on words that Jesus uses here. The the word in your Bible that's translated taste actually has a double meaning. It's, It's the same word that we use for foolishness. To be tasteless salt is to be a foolish disciple. And and the word foolish here is not a judgment regarding someone's intellect. It's a moral and a spiritual state. It's to be foolish is to ignore Jesus' teaching or fail to obey it. A foolish person is a person who lives in disobedience, who hears the words of Jesus, who hears the calling of Jesus and walks away from it and doesn't heed it. That's a fool. Jesus is saying that if you reject his call to discipleship, if you ignore his invitation to flourishing, you're you're like salt that has lost its savor. You're, You're good for nothing except to be trampled upon. This is judgment language. Tasteless salt is illegitimate salt. It's an oxymoron. It makes no sense. It's like lighting a lamp... And the purpose of a lamp is to illuminate, is to give light to a house. It's like lighting a lamp and putting that lamp under a basket. It makes no sense. It's counterintuitive to logic. Charles Quarles puts it powerfully. He says, Jesus did not say that a city on a hill must not be hidden, but that it cannot be hidden. Literally is not able to be hidden. And in the same way, It is impossible for a true disciple not to shine in the world. A disciple who does not glorify God and draw others to him by exhibiting righteousness is like a light that does not shine, water that is not wet, or fire that is not hot. See, Jesus in this passage is is putting before us two paths. We'll see this over and over and over in his sermon. There's there's the path of purpose and flourishing through living as salt and light in the world. Or there's the path that leads to judgment. But what we notice here is that there is not a middle path. Francis Chan drives this point home. 
There's no middle road. There's, there's not a path where we get to be Jesus' disciple without the prospect of persecution. That's, that's not an option before us. There's, there's not a path where we get to be Jesus' disciples, where we get the benefits of God's coming kingdom without living for that kingdom now. True disciples are salty. True disciples are luminous. They shine. And so the question for us this morning is are you shining? Is your light shining? Are you living your life in such a way that others may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven? Can people look at you and see in you that you are a person submitted to the authority of God and see in the way that you live your life that God's ways are good, right, and perfect? That's what it means for people to see your good works and give glory to God who is in heaven. Jesus is calling us to a life of righteousness, and he's calling us to a life of living to proclaim that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Are you living as an ambassador of Christ? And are you living as as a herald of this new covenant that Jesus has brought through his life, death, and resurrection? Or are you a lamp under a basket? May we be able to sing with the children, this little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that for each of us this morning, we would be able to say that we are truly lights in a dark world, that we aren't salt that is lost, its taste, its savor, but that, God, we would truly be your disciples. And so, God, for those who perhaps this morning are here and feel like their light is awfully dim, I pray that you would encourage them that you're not in the business of snuffing out flickering wicks. But that your desire and your delight is to fan the flame in each of us. Lord, we pray that by your spirit, you would embolden us to live for you. God, give us faith to believe that your ways truly are the good life. That you're calling us to flourishing and wholeness. You're calling us to purpose and meaning. Lord, help us to grab hold of that by faith and help us to live boldly for you in a world that desperately needs the good news that, Jesus, you have come. You've come to set free those who are in bondage. You've come to give sight to the blind. You've ushered in this new covenant that we can enter into by faith in you. We, we don't have to do anything. We don't have to earn our way into this covenant relationship. You've provided everything. You simply bid us to come. Lord, make us bold ambassadors of this message. It truly is good news. And Jesus, you are abundant life. Lord, make us bright. Make us salty. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.